In the early 2010s, a curious trend started to appear on YouTube channels, large and small. The apology video. I want to apologize to the internet. I owe you an apology. I'm sorry. Thumbnails typically featured the YouTuber looking directly into the camera, cropped tight, skin slightly blotchy from crying. You know the look. I'm disappointed in myself. I'm only here to say that I'm so sorry. I'm going to apologize for a lot of things. According to Know Your Meme, by 2015, these videos were already being parodied for laughs. This has all taught me a really valuable lesson. Nine years ago, a YouTuber named Zoella posted a how-to hairstyle video to show her followers the art of the messy bun. So now that you've got your two-day-old hair, the next thing you want to do is to simply pull all your hair up into a high ponytail about here on your head. That video has received more than 12 million views, and The Guardian credits it being one of the original messy bun tutorials. Inspired by the kind of no-frill style one might use for yoga class, the messy bun hit the big time and became a multi-step process requiring multiple hairbands, bobby pins, and complicated twists. One thing to remember is that this doesn't have to be neat at this point because it's a messy bun. In 2013, in the very first season of Fixer Upper, Joanna Gaines introduced the world to shiplap. We exposed the shiplap. Started ripping off the shiplap. I guarantee you behind it is more of the shiplap. I want to get shiplap. See if there's but shiplap. Shiplap originated in the maritime industry. Then, the utilitarian construction technique made its way into the home as a base for wallpaper. One might find shiplap during a renovation and, like Gaines, decide it's nice enough to clean up and paint. She found all this wonderful shiplap. Nice shiplap chair rail. We'd had a little shiplap. I would start by exposing the shiplap. Or one might spend $300 for 20 square feet of paneling at woodplank.com to get the same look. Here, I love, love, love shiplap. Like shiplap. Yeah. White shiplap on the wall. Look at the shiplap. And then the shiplap was there. We incorporated the shiplap and then did the shiplap. The authentic act, documented and shared, quickly becomes a meme. The apology video, the messy bun, the relentlessly quaint farmhouse style, they all started somewhere. It's not so much that the authentic act becomes inauthentic but that it becomes planned and designed to signify authenticity. And that authenticity, well, it's real good for business. What was once singular becomes mass-produced and predictably unique. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. Predictably unique is how David A. Banks defines authenticity in his book, The City Authentic. Authenticity, or what's predictably unique, describes how culture, place, and style are packaged to become recognizable, and therefore consumable, to a general audience. And while Banks' interest is in the politics of urban planning, his analysis spoke to a question I've pondered for almost as long as I've been a very online person. 
Why does authenticity so often feel fake? How can a form of expression feel legitimately authentic one day and discernibly contrived or derivative the next? Is it the expression or my perception of it that changes? Why does authentic become an aesthetic, a legible set of features that denotes the real? And why does formulaic authenticity convey such social capital, or at least promise to? I believe these questions can help us understand how we interact with work, the market, and the media today. And I also know that this is the kind of subject that I really enjoy teasing apart philosophically and theoretically, but that can easily feel like an attack on your choices. So just a brief disclaimer. This exploration isn't a critique of anyone's personal choices, nor am I trying to change how you relate to the idea of authenticity. I have no desire to become the authenticity police. That's just dumb. Instead, I want to examine how the idea of authenticity is culturally created, reproduced, and absorbed into how we move through the world. Now, we say we value authenticity. And what that seems to mean is that we value the real. We imply the objective quality of authenticity, the sort that can be fact-checked. But in actuality, we're far more likely to be happy with something that's been designed to appeal to a subjective sense of authenticity. We need the right balance of bespoke authenticity and market compatibility, according to Banks. It's that balance that he dubs predictably unique. He writes, something is different enough that it can transport us, offering an existential experience or fulfilling a previously constructed expectation, but it is not so alien that it gets rejected outright as too intimidating or simply a bad fit for the prevailing market conditions. For example, uncovering shiplap under a few layers of wallpaper isn't exactly intimidating, but it is a bad fit for market conditions. In one sense, there is just an extremely limited number of homes that still have shiplap wall construction. Your odds of buying one are very slim. In another sense, no one is suggesting we go back to making walls out of shiplap because it would significantly increase the cost of construction. So then the best option is to create a consumer product that's market ready and conveys the idea of shiplap. Market compatibility is a filter we put ourselves through every day. Yeah, we wanna be ourselves, but we also want to fit in. We want to show off our unique interests and style, but we also want to show up in a way that's recognizable to others. I'd like to say that this is more a question of social compatibility than market compatibility, that being enmeshed in a community culture naturally tempers our choices. 
but it's hard to say where the market stops and culture starts today. The market sells us the tools we use to create or signal community culture. And so without consciously doing otherwise, we reproduce market compatibility through our daily choices. Now, this is something I personally wrestle with every day. My quote-unquote authentic self is illegible to most people who don't share a smattering of my identities. My authentic self is a bad fit for prevailing market conditions. And yeah, I might even say that my authentic self is intimidating, or at least that's what I've been told. As I write about in my book, the impulse to sculpt a market-compatible version of myself is hard to ignore, and my attempts to do so resulted in multiple episodes of depression and burnout throughout my life. The market-compatible version of me isn't merely a matter of packaging. She's not someone who wears the right clothes, does her hair the right way, and smiles just so in selfies. I mean, okay, it's, it's partly that. But that's not actually the hard part. The transformation into a market-compatible version of myself is much deeper than that. I have to become, or appear to become, someone who can function in environments that others consider unremarkable. The market-compatible me smiles through the small talk phase of a meeting. She can mingle at a conference. She could finally go back to the gym without fear of others asking where she's been for two-plus years. She could do her job and stop feeling the low-grade panic attack that simmers just below the surface whenever she has to address anyone's needs but her own. My market-compatible, authentic self certainly wouldn't have a virtual Rolodex of proper social interactions that she flips through anytime she's dealing with someone other than herself. The predictably unique version of myself would be lovably introverted, instead of aloof and prickly. All of that is to say that authenticity is often anything but. When we say authentic today, what we're really talking about is a vibe, right? And to paraphrase Banks, how do you put a price tag on a vibe? Yet, we do put a price tag on vibes. Or at the least, we understand that there is a certain vibe that stores value, influence, entertainment, aspiration, education. And the value of this vibe is evidenced by a set of choices made, intentionally or unintentionally, in response to the market. That could be the consumer market, as it often is, or it could be the market of public opinion, ideas, emotions, or social relations. The market supplies, for a price, a set of shared symbols and shared language we can use to register as authentic. This vibe and the shared symbols and language that make it up is what Adorno calls the jargon of authenticity. The jargon of authenticity is full of, he writes, words that are sacred without sacred content. It's full of signs and symbols that are more like counterfeit handbags than actual luxury goods. The jargon and its vibe give the impression of deep meaning and deep value without actually supplying any. 
Adorno points to the jargon of authenticity and how it picks up on the mimetic element in language to create certain effects. Those effects might give the impression that, for instance, you know me better or have more in common with me than you do. I see the jargon of authenticity in those carefully crafted Twitter threads that purport to be all about giving value, but are so obviously about taking it. I see it in LinkedIn posts that have that perfect hook floating above the read more link. I see it in planned spontaneity and hashtag vulnerability. The jargon of authenticity and its vibe convey a particular level of realness that delicately balances likability with the occasional peak at the rougher edges. Authenticity is confident and self-assured, except when it's time to be humble, nervous, or afraid, like a stylish pair of brand new distressed jeans. Hashtags and tote bag slogans exemplify the mimetic elements of language and their effects. Hashtags create digital links between people and brands posting about the same things. Tote bag slogans create an ephemeral connection between passersby. Ultimately, the effects created by the jargon of authenticity resemble connection, yet the connections forged by our shared language and symbols are whisper thin. Showing up authentically can change us. We try to create authentic personal brands, or at least we're told that we should. We might assume that that means making the brand more like the self, but in fact, the opposite is true. To make a personal brand more legibly authentic, it's the self that adapts. By further collapsing the self and brand into the same aesthetic and rhetorical plane, writes Dr. Emily Hund in her book, The Influencer Industry, influencers' level of authenticity supposedly became clear to others, particularly the marketers whose work was to assess and sell it. Hun's research shows that authenticity, something one might expect to be rich and variable, is flattened to a set of metrics recognizable to brands and agencies. Authenticity becomes another measurement to manage, and in doing so, provides incentives that result in a set of predictable choices. This finding among influencers echoes David Banks's finding that as cities strive to market themselves as authentic, that authenticity becomes calculated. For authenticity peddling, he writes, this often takes the form of corporatization and gentrification. Honestly, I think gentrification might be a pretty great way to think of what happens to our online spaces and ourselves in those spaces. Look around your digital neighborhood. Do you see people just living their lives and doing their work? Or do you see people reproducing the choices others have made to convey a certain message? The message in this case being, I'm worth paying attention to. Our digital self-expression becomes a predictably unique reproduction, losing its aura, but gaining a mass legibility that transforms it into a better consumer product or attention getter. 
remember that gentrification is not simply the loss of a neighborhood or city's connection to history and heritage. It's not only a sea change in culture. Rather, it's an economic shift that makes it impossible for those with fewer resources to remain members of the community. Gentrification increases the wealth of the already wealthy, whether that wealth is financial, social, or attentional. And gentrification is always looking to expand. For a city, that means one gentrified neighborhood turns into two, two turns into four, four turns into eight, until the whole city is shiny, new, and completely detached from the people who once called it home. No one can afford to live there except the wealthy and professional classes. The story goes from being one in which hip is defined as a connection to culture and community to a story in which hip is living someplace full of the many amenities someone of means wants to live close to. And yeah, you can interpret that with all of the racial and class bias it seems to entail. But what does gentrification mean for social media or personal brands? As online spaces gentrify, how we represent ourselves in those spaces becomes flatter and less diverse. Even as we try to attract attention for ourselves on the basis of our unique contributions, our expression starts to look like everyone else's. The prevailing vibe becomes one that can only be maintained professionally. That is, either you approach managing your online presence as if it's a full-time job, presumably with the hopes that it will actually become a full-time job, or you hire an agency or team member to manage that presence for you. And I suppose now a, a third option is to entrust your digital representation to artificial intelligence. The gentrified personal brand must respond and remake itself whenever there's a vibe shift. As the language and symbols of authenticity change, so must the language and symbols used by the personal brand. And this necessarily creates the wobbly, untethered feeling that so often a company is trying to keep up with the online world. Now, I started this exploration with apology videos, messy buns, and shiplap for a reason. Not only are they perfect examples of how authentic expression is mechanically reproduced, but they are also examples of symbols that came and went as the vibe shifted. They're not gone, of course, but they don't hold the same cultural capital that they once did. So how might we understand authenticity differently? A quality neither dictated by the whims of capital nor as a fixed essence that can only be discovered by pulling up the 1990s era carpeting. Simone de Beauvoir and other existential philosophers attempt to provide an answer. For Beauvoir, authenticity isn't a natural state or essence of the self. It's not something that we can return to in a pure form or excavate from the many layers of the marketplace. It's not even our personal histories and prior choices. Instead, we make our authentic selves each day. We define what is authentic as we define ourselves as free people. 
In her book, How to Be Authentic, Sky Cleary delves into Beauvoir's philosophy to connect it with our contemporary journeys of personal growth. So we exist first, we're thrown into the world, and then it's up to us to create our essence. And authenticity through this lens is you know, a process of creating your essence in ways that you choose. It's about embracing your freedom to, to shape your, your life. And this is one of the questions that really got me into uh, researching authenticity was all this talk about, oh, yeah, just be yourself, just be your true self. And I'm like, yeah, what is that? How do I even find my true self? Like, what, where, where is it? You know, how do I look for it? How do I know when I find it? And what if I Cleary writes, authenticity is a way of expressing our freedom to realize and accept that we are free to be lucid about what we can and can't choose about ourselves, our situation, and others, and to use our freedom as a tool to shape ourselves. Authenticity from this perspective isn't a marketing tool. It's not a way to attract attention. It is instead the only good faith response to an internal gut check of our values and ethics, as well as the awareness that we are enmeshed in each other's lives. There's something about predictably unique, commodified hashtag authenticity that feels detached, sort of out of touch with social reality. It's a performance directed at others rather than an invitation to connect. What's so often missing from our expressions of authenticity today is an acknowledgement of relationship. We work so hard at attracting attention that we end up cut off. Our speech is brimming with isolation. Our hit and run attempts at building community only serve to further alienate us and those we want to be in community with. Now, I'm not here to take away anyone's messy bun. God knows what I'd do without mine. What I am interested in though, is exposing how our attempts to be authentic are the same things that make us feel alone and unheard, denizens of gentrified digital spaces. What if instead of getting real, we tried to get together? We could stop peddling the same advice, the same symbols of wisdom, and start inviting others in. Instead of trying to attract attention, we could reach out and make a connection. Thanks for listening to What Works. My goal is to expose the assumptions and hype that make up the 21st century economy and reveal the ways in which our work and culture are shaped by harmful systems. Every episode of What Works is also published in essay form in my newsletter. Subscribe at read.explorewhatworks.com, where you can also chip in $7 per month to support my work, get premium content, and discounts to workshops. Again, that's read.explorewhatworks.com. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen, 
Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer, and Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestoga peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutenaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell.